Please continue with me in worship in our scripture reading this morning from the book of Mark. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for the disciples and where will you um, have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you. Great to be with you on this September day. Someone in this room is going to be unfaithful to their spouse by the end of the month. Someone in this section over here is going to embezzle money before the end of the year from their company. Someone in this section over here is going to leave their family, going to leave their faith. And someone in this section over here is going to renounce their faith and start talking trash about me. <coughs> well, obviously, you don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. But if you thought it might be true, the tension, the uncertainty, the, wait, what? That would unfold in this room, in this moment, would be as palpable as what was unfolding in the room with Jesus and his disciples at Passover. Something about this moment, this, this time where, where Jesus has... His gathered people, his 12, he's taken them up into the upper room. It's Passover. It's one of the most special weekends in the Jewish calendar. Everything has been culminating, or so it seems, to this moment in Jesus' life and to the disciples' ministry. Everything seems to be going up until now. And the 12 are 
reclining around the table, and there's, there's probably others, other disciples, men, women, maybe even children that are they're eating the Passover together. And Jesus says, it's actually worse than you think. It's not just one of you, it's one of these 12. It's one of the elders and the staff that are going to lose their faith this month. Wait, what? This can't be. This upper room moment is one of the most striking moments in all of history. And, and Mark takes it and has it very, very Mark-like, very condensed, very tight, and very purposeful. So this morning what we're going to see from these verses is three things. First, that we're all betrayers. We are all betrayers. That we're all betrayed. And thirdly, that Jesus came for the betrayed, and for the betrayer. We're all betrayers, we're all betrayed, and Jesus came for the betrayed and for the betrayers. We are all betrayers. Come on, Matt. I mean, does it seem a little excessive, a little, little, maybe a little over top, you know, to be pushing quite that much? I mean, betrayers, come on. Not that bad. I mean, aren't the problems out there anyway? I mean, isn't it, isn't it really systems and ideology that are fundamentally the problem related to what's going on? And isn't that what's really broken? The Bible would say, no. no. It would say the problem is not out there. The, the, the problem is in here. The problem is not them. The problem is me. Alexander Schultzenitsyn famed Russian writer, said, this line, the line separating good and evil, passes through not the states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That's what we see unfolding this morning with the disciples. Not a problem out there, but a problem in here. And we see two different kinds of betrayals here. We see, we see a knowing betrayer, and, and then we see blind betrayers. Knowing betrayers and blind betrayers. And, of course, the knowing betrayer is Judas. We talked about him a little bit last week, about, about the false disciple, the one who, if you're Judas, you know it's you. Think about it. The other disciples have no idea who Jesus is talking about. Now, they ask the question, no doubt, right? They ask the question, is, is it I? Which is not a sincere question. It's, it's actually, it's not, not, it's not me. I mean, right? It's not me. But Judas, when he says it is not, when he parrots the rest of the disciples and says, it, it's, it is not I. It is him, and he knows it. He's a knowing betrayer. Judas is saying, he's talking about me. And, and there is this moment, I think we don't want to miss it, there's this moment right there where Judas has the opportunity to change course. Jesus intersects with him and gives him an opportunity to change course right there. And he doesn't. And what we see with Judas is what we see fundamentally with how sin progresses, what, what, what James describes in in James chapter 1, he said, but each one of us, when we're tempted, when he's lured and enticed by his own evil desires, that's how it begins. There's this luring into the desires to try and make life work the way I want it to work. And then those desires, when they're con 
When it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It begins there, small, centered, and then sin gets full-grown, and it brings forth death. And the tragedy is that's exactly what was at stake for, for Judas, and that's exactly how it will unfold for him. It will lead to death. So maybe this knowing betrayer, maybe as I, as I gave those, I'll use the word, illustrative prophecies, for most of you, you were probably like, what is he doing? Uh, for others of you, you, you were probably like, man, I, I wonder who could possibly, this could possibly fit to. And, but maybe for some of you, you find yourself realizing, wait, what's he talking about? This is, this is kind of adjacent maybe to some of the things that are actually going on in my life. I'm not, I'm not embezzling from my company, but, but there are some things I'm kind of falsifying, you know, expense reports. Or, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not planning on leaving my family, but, but I am entertaining some stuff on the side with, with him or with her. Let me ask it this way. If that's adjacent, what, what, what could Jesus, if he stood up here and it was Jesus and not Matt, and, and if he stood here, what could he say right now about your heart and your life that would actually be the bullseye? What would be the thing that Jesus would say right now that like Judas, you'd say, he's talking about me? It is I. What would Jesus be putting his finger on? What is... What is the knowing betrayal in your soul right now? Because if it's there, <laughs> great news. Jesus, just like with Judas, is standing there saying, one of you is betraying, going to betray me. Turn. Today, right now. The story's not written yet. Turn today. Repent now. Bring things to the light. That's the response of the knowing betrayer when he's faced with the grace of Jesus. And that's what's offered today to you. To respond, to risk take confessing, to risk repenting, saying, yeah, it, it is me. Ima imagine the story. I know for those of you who grew up in the church, right, for us, we know this story. Imagine if Judas had said, wait, that's me. That, that's me. H how can this change? How how can this go in a different direction? I, I've already gotten 30 coins, but what, what, what could I do? Lord, forgive me. I, I've lost my way. Is there any way you can, is there anything you can do? That was available for Judas right there, as it is available for you today. Well, there's the... The knowing betrayer, but that's really the, the blind betrayer seems to be the thing that is most focused around in this particular passage because the disciples have no idea what's going on and they certainly do not see themselves in any way, shape, or form as betrayers. Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Why does Jesus do this? I mean, obviously Jesus, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Why doesn't he just say, one of you is going to betray me and it's you. I mean, all the disciples would be like, let's kick him out, you know, like we'll take a vote. And then, we'll, you know, 12 angry men. Um, no, he, he doesn't. Why not? Uh, there's actually, I think, a couple of reasons. But, but one of the fundamental reasons is that Jesus is trying to get at the other disciples. 
He's striking at them. He's saying, I want each of my disciples to honestly inventory their soul. One of you is going to betray me. Betray me, it's, it's like it's a, there's a selling out, a, a handing over of a person or a thing. It's, it's because I want this, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to sell this. I'm going to, I'm going to barter for what I really must have. And that's what the sin of betrayal is. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to unmask it in his disciples. He's trying to pull out the reality in them and from them that they may realize and see that if things don't go the way that they want them to go, if Jesus doesn't come through in the ways that they're expecting him to come through, then they will abandon him. That, that they are betrayals. That it's that fickle, that, that the reality of what their good life is, the pursuit of, and what he's maybe delivering are not matching, and that they will turn and run after what they have to have. The problem is that that, that doesn't surface unless things start going wrong. <laughs> Just like if if Nathan, the, the prophet, had arrived and, and shown up to talk to David right after he had been so valiantly brave and, and gone and cut the corner off of Saul's garment and not killed him when he should have because he's been chasing him down. And, and I mean, it's like a high point in David's life. Imagine if in that moment, the prophet Nathan walks up to David and says, listen, I know everyone's going like, you are the man. You should be king. Goodness me. You're holy and righteous and good, and you seem to have a perspective on the kingdom and on God. I mean, like, he said, listen, David, I just want you to know, you're, you're, you're going to kill one of these mighty men. I'm sorry. You're going to murder one of these mighty men because you slept with one of their wives and got him pregnant and tried to hide it. What would David say? You know, I can see that. No, probably not. You know how I know? It's because when he actually does this and Nathan walks into the room and he tells him a story, David doesn't see that it's him. You are the man, Nathan has to say. He doesn't see that he has chosen to reject God and his ways and his good life because there is another good life that he must have. And, and Jesus is trying to draw that out of his disciples, trying to show them that indeed this applies to them but they don't think it applies to them. They don't know themselves, these 11. And they don't know the power of sin or that they would choose themselves over Jesus before the day is done. Couldn't see it. And things are about to go wrong and are about to reveal it. And maybe that's... Um, Maybe that's a little bit of where you find yourself maybe this morning. Surely not me. I mean, there's some stuff, you know, that, that's hard and that, you know, I str struggle with and, and kind of work through, and, but it's, but you know, it's the, it's small stuff. It's nothing, nothing to, you know, write home to Jesus about. But this is what we know from the Bible not that we're dabblers, but that we're betrayers. That it's far deeper and far more vast. What history shows us is that the confluence of a, of a, of a particular set of threats 
of a certain set of pressures, of a tailored type of temptations, all of those combined with a set of opportunities and circumstance, and anyone, anyone will do and commit evil that they would never have thought possible. That's what all of scripture points to. That's certainly what all of history seems to describe. That put the right set of pressures, circumstances, threats, and people will do evil. You and I will do evil. Egregious evil. The, the kind of evil that as you sit here this morning, you could maybe never think yourself capable of. That's some of Jesus' point. He's looking at his disciples and saying, you do not know yourselves. And you do not know the power of what it looks like for you to chase down what you think life is about versus what I'm going to call you to, what I'm inviting you into. Surely not I, they say. It can't be me. No, it, it can't be me. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't do something like that. I can't imagine it. What I love is Peter, who, of course, is... I think one of the best characters in the entire Bible. Peter doubles down because Peter always doubles down. Peter doubles down and says, even though they all fall away, I will not. I mean, I think that's just great, you know? When Jesus is saying something about how, hey, I think you guys, you guys are all going to fall away, you're all going to fail, the best thing to do is to separate yourself from the other riffraff and go like, I don't know about those yokels, but not me. Not, not me. They, they may, and by the way, there's a few of them. I'll give you some names of who I think will go first, but not me. You see, I'm, I'm committed. And Jesus, and we'll get to talk about Peter more in the next few weeks, and Jesus, because he loves Peter with such a fierce love, just smashes right on top of that. Oh, Peter... It's worse than you realize. Before the rooster crows, you're going to do worse than the other guys. You're going to betray me more directly. You're going to reject me more fully than all the other ones combined. You do not know yourself, Peter, but I know you. Sin is universal, and it's worse than you think, and it's more present and nearer than we imagine Theologian and writer A.W. Pink says, God, God needs only to slacken the reins of providential restraint and, and withhold the influence of saving grace, and apostate man will only too soon and too surely of his own accord fall by his iniquities. In other words, he says, let all divine restraint be removed. Let all divine restraint removed, and every man is capable of becoming would become a Cain, a Pharaoh, a Judas. We are all betrayers. Anyone who says differently, selling something. We're all betrayers. So what do we, how do we respond? If the response to be an, a, an aware and a knowing betrayer is repentance and, and, um, and confession, then what is the response of the blind, the blind betrayer? Which I would propose includes all of us in this room. 
Well, the response seems to come directly out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul writes, Now these things happen to them as an example. He's talking about the people of the Old Testament. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for your instruction. That's good news. On whom the end of the age has come. So he's saying, listen and learn from what has happened. And then listen to verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13 is, is the hope. So anyone who thinks they stand, they better take heed lest they fall. But listen to verse 13. But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. <laughs> We're all betrayers. Common. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way to have escape that you may be able to endure it. So what is our response? The first is humility. First is humility. It says, when you, when you see someone doing something or you hear about something of having happened or you hear that maybe someone could have, it's not saying never could I, but no, there but by the grace of God go I. If it's not the grace of God withholding and withstanding me, then I could be walking that exact same road. I could have run into that very same, it's the very same challenge, that very same failure. That I'm no better. I'm no stronger. I'm just as prone. And humility in particular, and I think this is something we are particularly struggle with as Christians. We're awesome compartmentalizers and we love to manage sin. And so when we're managing sin, we start looking at other people and we say, hey, you know what? I would never fall to the temptation that that person fell to when I've never actually been tempted by that temptation. And so we stand up and say, aren't I good, righteous, and strong? I have not fallen to the thing that someone else has actually been tempted with that I've not been tempted by. Humility says, I haven't been tempted by that, but if the certain circumstances and the proclivities, I, I don't know. There, but by the grace of God, go I. There's a Judas in me. So there's humility, and then there's a staying honestly on guard. We talked about that with watchfulness in, in chapter 13 a few weeks ago. But it's, it's short accounts. It's, it's not leaving like a little bit of room for Satan to start pulling us in a particular direction. It's it's having an honest heart disposition that says, God, I'm going to assume that I don't see myself rightly, that, I, that I'm not seeing what's actually in front of me, that I'm not understanding my weaknesses rightly. And so I become familiar with Psalm 139, which says, search me, O God, and know my heart. You know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and, and see if there's any grievous way in me. And, and if there is, will you lead me in the way everlasting? Will you, will you take me down a path that's not this path of of death. And that's the third thing, and that is how do we respond? Respond with humility. Respond by, by staying honest with ourselves and asking God to be honest with us. And thirdly, to recognize as we see it rightly to say, God, if you don't give me the power, I'm sunk. That I'm that weak. And it's only as you are going to be able to enable me to withstand, to overcome, to as as James says, to endure, I'm sorry, as Corinthians says, to endure, it's going to have to be you doing it in me. You are not as strong as you think. You are not as mature as you think. You are not as infallible as you think. 
We are all betrayers. Augustine says this about our good buddy Peter. He said, God knows us even what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. For Peter did not know his weakness when he heard from the Lord that he would deny him three times. He did not know his weakness. Loved ones, the mature man, the mature woman is the one who is familiar with their weakness, who is humble, who trusts the Lord to be the deliverer and does not lean on their own strength, their own righteousness, or even their own record. That is the mark of the person who listens and follows and discipled after Jesus. We're all betrayers and we're all betrayed. Verse 20, and he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Uh, there's something about how Jesus phrases that. It's, do you feel the intimacy? Can, can you hear the, like, his hand is in the dish with me. Like, we're celebrating this meal, which is the, which is the meal of the rescue of, of God's people by the faithfulness of God. Like, our hands are together in the same pot, and it's that one who is betraying me. One who is close, who is nearby, who's intimately acquainted and connected to me and with me. The betrayal, of course, is centered on the betrayal of Jesus, but, but all the disciples are betrayed. The other 11 are betrayed. They've been living with this guy for at least, for, with Judas for at least three years, somewhere in that bubble. And the other disciples and the people who've been giving money and serving and the trail runs deep, the disciples too. This verse echoes uh, what David expressed in Psalm 41. It's a psalm of lament. He says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is betrayed. Disciples are betrayed. We're all betrayed. It's, here's what I know. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care how, I don't care how great your upbringing was and, and how, how awesome your parents were. I don't care how good of friends you had around you. I don't care how supportive your boss or your coworkers have been all along. Um, we've all known betrayal. We've all had someone important to us, someone influential around us, someone who chose to distance themselves from us. Just align themselves with an adversary or an enemy or, or someone who had been against us. Someone, who, someone significant who purposely undercut us, who publicly dismissed us, who quietly just disappeared from our lives. And it's happened to you on playgrounds, happened to you in classrooms when you're in elementary school or college. It's happened to you around your family dinner table. It's maybe happened to you around a boardroom table. Happened from friends, from parents, from spouse, from kids, from friends, from spouse, from kids, from parents. No one is immune. No one is immune. It's part of the human experience. We're all betrayed. And, and betrayal doesn't have to come in some massive event, one significant moment like it is described here. Jesus' betrayals have actually been going on all along, we find out later on. 
small betrayals, small thefts. They don't have to be a grand moment. They can be the accumulation of, of a thousand small betrayals, a hundred micro-rejections, dozens of rejected abandonment moments. And the cost of betrayal is pain. The cross is going to be sorrow. There is, there is pain when betrayal shows up. Real and powerful. And and when, and when betrayals happen, either over a long period of time consistently or in significant moments, there's no sugarcoating it. There's no working around it. There's no, like, sweeping it under the rug. There's no playing it down. There's no making light of it. There is a debt of pain that has been inflicted. And that debt of pain must be paid. Now, some of us in this room are walking around with scars and um, they're, they're marks from something that has occurred, things that have occurred over time, but, but underneath there's wholeness. And I know, I know some of you because I know some of what those scars have looked like and, and you smell and you feel free. You, you feel whole. You, you seem like someone who is at peace. It's, it's real, but something deep has happened that has healed your whole. But then there's some of us in this room that, that are walking around not with scars, but with open wounds, with, with things that have either happened a long time ago or happened pseudo-recently or things that are going on right now, and they're alive. They're, they're tangible, and, and you're not free, and you're not at peace. And things aren't actually really getting a whole lot better. You're just getting better at dealing with them or just maybe better at medicating them. You aren't free and you're leaking. According to the Bible, there is one single antidote, one single antidote to the betrayed heart. And that's forgiveness. And it is powerful, but it is a costly treatment. But it's the only way you see, because forgiveness is us paying down the debt of pain for someone else. It's not having them pay down the debt for us. That's retaliation and retribution. And, and frankly, that feels that's honestly the only other option to forgiveness is you've got to get your pound of flesh out of them for the pound of flesh they took from you. But here's the crazy thing. It doesn't actually work. It, it doesn't work. And for those of you who've tried, you realize that the currencies aren't the same. And because the currencies aren't the same, if someone robbed you of, a situ of, a, of an evening because of how they behaved, you can't get that evening back, even if you try to rob them of another evening. On the other side of that, you're not going to feel free and whole. You're going to be like, I think mine was still worse. Maybe two nights robbed would be better. It doesn't work. It wasn't meant to work. It's a costly treatment because we pay down the debt. The doorway to forgiveness is not what we think it would be. The doorway to forgiveness 
is coming to understand deep in our soul, deep in, our, deep in the core of who we are, the first point. The only way we will ever be able to move towards forgiveness is someone who has betrayed us over time or grievously in one time is if we understand that we're all betrayers. See, we must see ourselves before God as someone who, not who would never do that, but as someone who just like them, of course, could or would or maybe has. I think I've used the illustration before, you know, when, when, um, when you lie, you're a liar. When I lie, it's complicated. Because I'm not really a liar, but you're a liar. The only way we move towards forgiveness the only possible way to move towards forgiveness is to see ourselves also as a betrayer. It's the doorway. A betrayed heart that doesn't see itself as a betrayer won't forgive. And as um, Yale theology professor Miroslav Volf says, he says, I fail to forgive because, quote, I fail to forgive others because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Exclude them from the community of humans, myself from the community of sinners. And the only way for healing to take place is to, for those things to be flopped, is that they become human, and I join the community of sinners with them. And of course, this you know, flies in the face of the current culture of blaming and victimization. You can't, you can't blame and you can't be a victim if you're going to see yourself as part of one who would, who would victimize, who would betray, who would be part of the worst, who could at any moment, if not for the grace of God. The betrayed people, the betrayed heart that won't forgive will justify its own betrayals. That's, that's what it moves to, right? I forget who said it, but someone said, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. You don't ever hear the story of someone who's done something really terrible, who's been abusive, whatever. All it takes is just listen to their story. How were they abused? How were they beaten? What kind of alcoholic father did they have? And next thing you know, you're feeling sympathy for them and you're blaming it up. And we go upstream. Hurt people, hurt people. is why the author of Hebrews invites us. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. That's just an amazing verse. But, but strive for peace with everyone. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And, th and this is the manifestation. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no root of bitterness, no resentment that you hang on to and starts growing fruit of resentment. And by it, many are defiled. It spreads. It gets worse. Everyone's a betrayer. We're all betrayers. And, and we've all been betrayed. 
And the reason why we have to talk about everyone being betrayed is because if I just talk to you about you being a betrayer, you'd be like, you don't understand what's been done to me. You don't understand what's happened. I've been pretty much good. I've been pretty much together. I've overcome a bunch of stuff. But them, they, there, and you will not be free. <laughs> and the only way to be free from how you've been betrayed is by understanding yourself as a betrayer, by joining the community of the sinners. And that's precisely what Jesus is inviting his disciples into in this moment. Yes, you, he says, and I will show you. So I, I don't know who you've been betrayed by. And these are some questions in your community group um, discussion. I don't know what that's looked like. But in the same way that you must search your heart, you must search your heart here too. See if there's anything that remains. Ask the people around you whether or not you're leaking. If they love you, they'll tell you the truth. Is it I? Well, Jesus came to for the betrayed and for betrayers. It's good news. I mean, like really, really good news. First of all, you need to hear what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Verse 27 says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, which he quotes Zechariah 13 here and says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd. God is saying, I will strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd. I am purposing redemption for you. You're all betrayers. And I, Jesus came and died on purpose. As it is written, as it has been said, I will strike the shepherd. This is, this is a pivotal element of theology to understand that God, that Jesus did not get dragged to the cross, but that he chose the cross for you. You understand how it affects you? If you're a betrayer, and he knows you, if he, if he sits in front of you and says, someone's going to betray me today, and looks at you, and, and you're like, that, that's me. But he chose the cross anyway. From the beginning of time, before all time was, that he chose it, that it was as it is written, that his sovereign purpose and will was accomplished, that he will do it and he did do it, that he's after you in that way like we read in Luke 15. And that doesn't remove or alleviate the responsibility of Judas. I mean, the, the, one of the crippling verses here is, Woe, yes, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and as it is written, and there's a sovereign purpose of God unfolding, but woe to the man by whom it is. It would be better if he had not been born. Full agency and responsibility lands on Judas' shoulders, as it does with you and me. And because that's the case, Jesus says, I see you. Do you, do you want to come out? Do you want to come forward? Do you want to move towards me? Do you want to repent? Do you see the kindness of Jesus there? He's after you in that exact same way. Jesus came. He came for you. He came for the betrayed. You need to hear this. If you're, if you're betrayed, this morning have been betrayed, if that's actually lingering stuff, if you're still leaking, if, if they're not scars that are healed, you need to hear Psalm 27, 
The Lord says, well, David says, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. I think that's one of the most amazing verses in the scripture. If your moms and dads in this room, that's an amazing verse. Mothers and fathers do not, by and large, forsake their children. Psalm is saying, if that happens, it's okay. I'm not undone, I'm not destroyed, because the Lord will take me in. Loved ones, the Lord will take you in. Not only is it pivotal for those of us who've been betrayed, who are living with betrayal, not only is it pivotal for understanding that we are part of, we are also a betrayer, but we have to understand that he is the one who, as he came, receives you in. That betrayal speaks of rejection. It means that you weren't worth it. That it was better for someone else to get what they wanted than to care for you, to protect you, to make it okay with you. You were not loved. Not enough. You didn't matter enough. What the gospel says, what Jesus says, when Jesus comes for you, what he's saying to you is, I have you. You are precious to me. You are, you are accepted. It's what the Bible calls adoption. Been grafted in. You may have been made family. I don't care how you've been treated around your, around your kitchen table. You are at my table now. And nothing can change that. The Lord will take me in. There's no secondary betrayals or rejections can override the reality that the king of the universe calls you his. He calls you his beloved. He calls you his son and his daughter. And that is not news that gets old for anyone. From there, freedom comes. But Jesus came for the betrayer. And because even us, those of us who have been betrayed, we're also betrayers. And we need a Jesus who would come and who would die. Something remarkably sweet about, about the way this unfolds. If you think about it, uh, Steve said it this way. I was talking to Steve about this passage in Heimler, and he said, Jesus slides the ring on their finger knowing ahead of time their adultery. Do you see how it plays out? Jesus is standing with them, sitting with them in the room and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, can't be me, can't be me. He's like, here's my body. It's, gonna be, it's broken for you. And, and here's the cup of the new covenant that I'm making with you. I'm making a covenant. I'm, I'm putting a, ri a ring on your finger saying you're going to be mine and, and I'm going to be yours. And, and then they walk out the door and he tells them you're actually going to betray me and all of you are going to leave. I'm not just, some, not just one. All of you are going to abandon me. You're all going to reject me. Puts the ring on their finger knowing their adultery and that's... That's precisely what they're left with as he will head to the cross. The fact that knowing they are betrayers, he covenanted himself to them. And he would live out that covenanting on the cross when he remained and stayed there for all the betrayers that stuck him on there. So it makes this meal so fantastic, such an incredible reminder that it's that it is also wedged in the reality of your life that you have been a betrayer, and loved ones, you're going to be again. You're going to choose you over Jesus again, probably today. 
And this sits in the middle of that for the rest of time until he returns. That he's broken for you, that he's poured out for you. When Jesus, <laughs> when Peter says, even if I will die, even if I must die, I will not betray you. It's like, no, you're going to betray me, and I'm going to die. I'm going to pay the debt, and it's going to be painful. And that's how we become the kind of people who are free, free to repent and confess when it's real, when Jesus says, I see you. In love, I see you. Loved ones, he sees you. And it's how we move towards people when they've caused us debt, when they've betrayed us. Because he says, I see you and I have you. So as we come this morning, we receive these elements. Know that the Lord sees you in, in all that is true about you today and what has been and all that is to be. And just like he says to his disciples, but, but after I will meet you in Galilee. That's the great consummation hope that shows up in this passage. I'm, it's not over here. I'm coming back. I am coming back for you. That's the good news of this table, and that's the good news of the gospel. So let me pray. Father, we, be we betrayed you. We betrayed each other. We betrayed things that we said we held fast to that we thought were very pivotal and important. We have. We have. We're not better. We're the same. And you see us and you choose us nonetheless. And so, Father, we today, would you, by your spirit, would you take that in just unfathomable beauty and truth about who you are, and would you drive that deep into our souls? And from it, would you elicit the kind of courage that allows us to tell the truth, to confess and repent, to bring things to the light that are going to help us be free? Would you heal the deep places that we're just, <laughs> that we're hanging on to because we want retaliation instead of freedom? That we want to be right instead of whole? Would you help us see ourselves rightly, but above all, would you help us see you rightly and so free us? Or we want to be wholehearted people. And we can only do that if you do that in us. And so we open ourselves now as we take these elements, as we take this juice and as we take this, uh, this bread and we take it into our bodies, would you, would you by your grace and for your glory, would you use it to do deep and good transformative work in us? By faith, we ask that in Christ. Amen.